thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Carolyn Ladowski who is a naturopath, herbalist and nutritionist and founder of MTHFR Support Australia. We've got Carolyn on the show to talk things all methylation and MTHFR. Hi Carolyn and thanks for joining us today. Hi Steph, uh, you're very welcome, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So because it's your first time on the show, could you just give us, give us a little bit of background information for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Well, I, um, I started off as a nutritionist and naturopath a few years back and I'm a real geek when it comes to biochemistry. So I used to get stuck into all the bloods and I really couldn't understand why a lot of people presented with this asterisk on their red cell folate count. Mm. And I called labs, I called biochemists, I called everybody and they said, oh, they must just be eating a lot of leafy green veggies. And I knew it wasn't the case. So I really delved into why someone would have a high red cell folate when they weren't taking supplements. And I came across the MTHFR gene. And that really threw me into this amazing world of biochemistry and trying to understand why some people metabolized it and some people didn't. And unbeknownst to me, there was a whole cross-section of the community that said, I want to know about this gene. They were ahead of me. So it was really consumer-driven why I set up MTHFR Support Australia because these everybody just kept coming out of the woodwork saying, I think this could be the secret to why I'm feeling the way I am. So then that made me do more work around... Um, biochemistry, more work around gene work, and I've done some ancillary um, uh, courses with Duke University and uh, Maryland University in the US around genetics because I really think that's the way medicine is going. I think, you know, in the not-too-distant future, people will come in, which is what they do to our clinic, and say, here are my genes, this is my health, this is my family history, what do I need to do to fix it? Yeah, absolutely. So what is MTHFR and why is it of significance? So MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Long word, but it's basically a gene that is responsible for someone to create an active folate. And this active folate is called 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So methyl being the operative word because it's this methyl group that goes on to become like a master switch for the body's biochemical pathways. Mm. So, for example, it will regulate 
our brain health. It will support neurotransmitters. It helps us break down our toxic estrogens. It's precursor to a lot of our detoxification pathways. So it's really significant. And although this methylation cycle that we talk about is very big and it's got lots of genes, I really think the MTHFR gene is crucial because it has this effect on our ability to create folate. Yeah, absolutely. So what's methylation then, if we can just take a step back? So, well, that's that's exactly what methylation is. It's the ability of the body to create a methyl group. And this methyl is used by SAMI. You might have heard of SAMI, S-adenosylmethionine. So SAMI becomes the universal donor of methyl groups in the body. So methylation is the ability of the body to use SAMI to activate all these really important... So, for example, histamine breakdown needs methyls to break histamine down. So that's what methylation is, adding a methyl group to all these important enzymes that can only work with a methyl group. Yes. That's what methylation is. And it just happens that the MTHFR gene is really the precursor to the body's ability to be able to make this methyl. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you see in terms of, we know it's called a polymorphism, but what what are some of the um, MTHFR, I guess, combinations you see and, and how do they present? Okay, so there's, there's actually about 30 MTHFR genes, but the two key ones that we look at are the C677T and the A1298C. And these two genes, you can it's just easy to get them tested through a blood test or they can go onto our site and order a kit. And basically they'll come back with one of two results. So the results will say whether you are homozygous or heterozygous. So homozygous means you got a mutated copy from both your mum and your dad because your mum or dad will donate one of two genes and it's randomly selected. So basically homozygous means that mum gave you one and dad gave you one that had a mutation. If it's heterozygous, it means you got one copy from either mum or dad. So obviously, if you are homozygous, there's a greater downregulation of that gene. So that's what the mutation in the MTHFR gene is. It's a downregulation or a slowing of enzyme activity. So if you are homozygous for the C677T, you are more it's more likely that there's probably a 50 to 60% slowing of that enzyme activity. If you're heterozygous, it's around 30 to 40%. So same with the A1298C, if you're homozygous for that, then it's about a 40% slowing of enzyme activity. And if you have one copy of each, like the 677T and one of the A1298C, then that's a roughly a 50% slowing of activity. Compound heterozygous, yeah. Yep, yep, which means you've got one of the 677T and one of the A1298C. Mm-hmm. Yes. So obviously the homozygous is, is more significant. How does that differ in terms of the manifestation? Uh, the 677T versus A1298C? Uh, sorry, good question. I meant um, 
actually, before before you answer that question, let's compare the the two because what we see a lot of is certainly more research and conversation around the C677T. Would you agree? Yes, I certainly would. Uh, traditionally, yes, because from a medical fraternity point of view, they've only ever associated the 677T with elevated homocysteine levels, mm. which then have a flow-on effect to cardiovascular disease. Yeah. But what we're seeing, it, particularly in the last five years, is a lot more emerging research about the A1298C. And I think if I had to put... If I had to generalise, I would say that the A1298C, we definitely, with the homozygous presentation, see a lot of anxiety and depression, and it can be, you know, from birth. It can really have a big effect. That's not to say that people with the 677T homozygous do not present with anxiety and depression because they do but that's certainly the one that would affect people more from a cardiovascular risk point of view Uh, so more likely to have strokes or heart attacks in the family it is also the one that we associate more with uh, fertility issues multiple miscarriage uh, midline defects like cleft lip cleft lip cleft palate uh, spina bifida autism, ADD, ADHD. But I must say I've spent the whole year, um, my focus this year is fertility. And I think that we can't any longer just say it's a 677T that's the issue. We need to be looking at this new research on the A1298C. And I think I've come to the conclusion from a fertility point of view that it doesn't really matter which one you have. It's about the lack of activity of the gene. So you know, fertility is all about folate, obviously, because that's what we need for great DNA. So if we're looking at the 677T homozygous at a 60% down regulation versus the homozygous A1298C at 40%, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's just that there's a lack of folate and we have to make up for that. So I think people always ask this question you know, about what what do we see most and i think that's the general consensus now that i have is that i'm really looking at the down regulation of the gene more than i am the different variants but i do know that the prevalence of homozygous a1298c with depression is huge yeah and i would say most people with that have some sort of depression and or anxiety in their family history okay that's great so you answered my question at the same time (laughs) (laughs) so then let's talk about that down regulation so how do you then detect or decide once you've got the genotype in front of you? What to do? Well, like you, we might say, okay, the homozygous C677T is 60% down regulation, but there's obviously big differences between someone that's eating a standard American or a standard Australian diet and someone mm-hmm. that's eating really well. And Absolutely. So, and that's a good, good question, yeah. Steph, because at the end of the day, just before, because someone has a mutation, it doesn't mean it's a problem. Mm. And I think that's really important for people yeah. to understand. Mm. And, you know, the, I think the most important thing, and the question at all my um, webinars and presentations, they always say, but I've obviously had this gene my whole life. How come just now 
I've got a problem. Mm. And invariably it's stress and the environment. So, you know, they might have gone through a very stressful period or they might have had prolonged chronic stress. They may not be eating well. So what, what causes the expression of the gene is mostly environment. And that environment, as you know, is obviously our diet and what we eat and what we drink and the exercise we do or don't do. And all these things will chew through the methyl groups that you have. So the more stressed you are and the worse you eat, the more likely the methyl groups get depleted and therefore you're about you're about to see this problem coming on. And I would go so far as to say that I have a lot of vegetarian patients as well. And I think this is probably another question for you, Steph, but the vegetarians I see as really having a very, very high risk because you to enable you to use these methyls, you have to have sufficient B12 or the, or the methylation cycle stops. And so vegans and vegetarians, they have high, high folate, but they can't use it because their B12 is insufficient. Mm. And I think we have a chronic B12 deficiency here in this country because you think about it, you need hydrochloric acid and our gut isn't great in the, the best of times, particularly the more stressed we are, the more we downregulate hydrochloric acid. The older you are, the more you have a downregulated hydrochloric acid. And I think, you know, diet has a huge, huge part to play because obviously if you need methyls and you're going to get it from your leafy greens, that's fabulous. But if you're not eating meat or you're not supplementing with B12, it's pretty well useless. Yeah. So this whole thing of this, and you probably agree, this fatty diet business of, you know, you've got to go paleo, you've got to go vegan or got to go vegetarian. I'm not a fan because I think moderation is where we should be with our diet, with everything. And then obviously with the MTHFR gene, you also have the susceptibility to a, a lower level of glutathione, which is one of your major antioxidants. So the more toxic chemicals that you're exposed to, the the harder it is for this methylation cycle to work. Mm. So we often see people with the genes with multiple chemical sensitivities um, and problems with detoxification because they're just not able to get rid of them out of the body. So I think there are massive implications for the gene and we, we have to be sensible and we have to look at it from a total point of view on, you know, are you exercising too much? Because, you know, you get marathon um, and triathletes who they use their methyl groups all day, every day, because they're just burning through them. And if they're not replacing them or they have a gene mutation, I think that's one of the reasons we see a lot of athletes with depression because they're really, they haven't got the capacity to recreate these methyls. And I counsel a lot of my patients in saying, you need to pull back on your exercise because again, there's gotta be moderation. How do you go with that conversation, though? <laughs> well, I mostly have the conversation around my fertility patients, yeah. and, and I say to them, this is a choice you have to make. I can't make it for you, 
But I'm telling you, you've got to cut this crazy triathlons and running and marathons. You've got to cut it out in this preconception period. I don't want you to do it at all. Yes, exercise, but do it where you're not running and, you know, getting on bikes and riding 50Ks. It's crazy. So the choice is yours, but you're not going to have a child while you're you're working physically the way you are yeah and um it's you know it's about compromise and and i've got one particular lady that i'm seeing at the moment and she loves her you know 15k run nearly every day and i say to her you're not going to fall pregnant while you're doing that so pull it back do a 5k three times a week but do it at 60 percent of your capacity not 150 Mm. you know so it's just about understanding that the environment that you have is plays a huge part so i totally agree but just to play deborah's devil's advocate would there not be anything else that she could do to to sort of balance out the the amount of training that she wants to do whether it is dietary or stress management or supplementation we de- we are definitely doing it from supplementation point of view yeah. but when i analyzed her methylation capacity it was really, really low. Mm. And so in the short term, until we get that back where it needs to be, I wanted her to pull right back. Yeah. But if she wasn't trying to fall pregnant, then again, I would have the same conversation, but I would say to them, okay, if you're going to go into this, you preload with your methyls. So you make sure that you're preparing your body for the loss of methyls before you exercise. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, a lot of these elite athletes just find it very, very hard to recover mm. um, because they just don't preload. So if you can preload your methyls going into, you know, a run, then you're not going to have the same effect afterwards. You're not going to be depleted. Great. So the, are you talking about with the activated B supplementation for a preload? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, and again, that depends on, I've just been around Australia presenting to practitioners. And I think one of the biggest things we really need to get out there, Steph, is that for some people, the active methyl, they don't cope with, and it can bring on anxiety and depression. So we have to be really careful. So let's talk about folate, if I may, because I think it's really important that we make this distinction. So think of folate as an umbrella. And under that umbrella, you have three forms of folate. Folic acid, which is our man-made supplemental synthetic version, and it's what they use to fortify foods and supplements. So For example, up until December last year, we only had folic acid in our supplementation. You then have folinic, which is an activated form. It is, if you look at on the folate pathway, it's a couple of steps before the 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, but it's really important for our purine synthesis and our DNA. And so then the third one is the 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So some people do exceptionally well on the 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, but some people do equally as well on the folinic. And both of those options are fine. It's just it, it just takes a, a matter of sitting down and saying, all right, I think this would be the best one for you. Is it trial and error though, or is it the analysis of the methylation pathways? Well, for me, it's about the questions I ask in the, in the history that I do. Mm-hmm. So... 
I will pretty well get a good understanding of whether or not someone will cope with methyls and someone will not. Mm. And we've we've had people ringing our clinic so many times to, to say, look, uh, you know, so-and-so and such-and-such recommended I take some methyls, but I'm feeling suicidal. What do I do? So we just really have to caution people to say, you know, be careful and be aware that there are potential side effects. And if you feel yourself sort of slipping down, um, then you need to consider that perhaps the methylfolate version isn't the best and you're better off with folinic. And either of those can work really well. Great. So that's obviously what you would teach your patients. So you might prescribe a methylated B, but provide yeah. them with the risk so that they're aware that if they regress, that they need to either contact you or stop exactly. immediately. Exactly. Yep. Great. Um, so then with the, with the folate conversation, I think this is quite interesting. Um, I wanted to link these two, or this topic, sorry, with fertility, because we obviously have seen that the preconception or the prenatal vitamins have always been fortified with folic acid correct so how is this problematic for someone with the mthfr polymorphism okay so if you if you imagine there's a folate pathway and your folate receptor which sits on the cell surface grabs folate and says thank you i'm bringing it into the cell now and i'm going to convert it to the active. Mm. So folic acid, because it's synthetic, there are a lot of people that don't really have the ability to break this down because they have mutations along this folate pathway. So it's like starting at the top versus starting at the bottom, which is what you're trying to, to achieve. And so the folic acid works, it's it overloads the first enzyme in the folate pathway because the research tells us that only roughly 200 to 300 micrograms a day this particular gene copes with. So if you think about it, people are eating bread, which by law has to be fortified with folic acid. They're eating breakfast cereals, which most of them are fortified with folic acid. They then might be having commercial flour products off the supermarket shelf, which has also got folic acid in it. So they're getting, and they might be taking a multivitamin with folic acid as well. So the research tells us that most people are probably getting about a thousand micrograms, not 200. And so this first enzyme gets overloaded. It can't cope with the folate coming through the system and that builds up. And there's not a lot of research, but there's some emerging research that's saying that this unmetabolized folic acid is actually having a detrimental attack on effect on our immune system. So my, my personal point of view is why would you use something that preferentially binds to your folate receptor and blocks out that good folate from our food? Because the folate receptor on the cell surface would prefer to bind to folic acid than it would folate from your food. And I think that's a problem. If A, it's overloading that first enzyme, and B, it's going to block our natural folate, then why do we use it? Mm. I know that others don't agree with me, but I, I think, I don't think, and I counsel my patients 
to avoid folic acid fortified foods because I want them. And do you know what? A lot of them, Steph, will improve by just doing that. It sounds strange, but just taking out the folic acid, a lot of people do feel better. I don't think it is strange, though, when the foods that they're also taking out are highly refined. Like, you know, you don't find synthetic folate in a natural whole food that's nutrient-dense. Oh, correct. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a double benefit there. They're removing some of these nutrient-poor foods and pulling out a synthetic vitamin that, that they cannot tolerate. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why a lot of them feel sick with a, with too much of the folic acid. Mm. So how do our guidelines, our preconception guidelines for folate change when someone's got a polymorphism? Well, this is a very controversial um, area because the TGA has regulated that by law a prenatal cannot be called a prenatal unless it has folic acid in it. Mm. And so what what does that tell? I mean what story does that tell? So I think it's it's hard for me to answer that question Steph because I can't say you can't have folic acid. But I certainly talk to my patients about better forms of folate because we have to have folate for preconception there's absolutely no question but I think it's the terminology that we're using that is in question not the fact that we all agree we have to have good levels of folate yeah so you can get your daily requirements with methylfolate and folinic acid yes you can and and I think I think certainly we will see a lot more research coming out because the emerging research is really great. It's so exciting that they're actually comparing the folic acid with the methylfolate now in a lot of the research studies. So that's what I'm looking at and analysing all the time because, you know, we're starting to see some really interesting things come of it. Yeah, absolutely. So do you then design your own prenatal supplementation for one of your fertility clients? Yes, and I've I've actually got a fertility formula in the works at the moment. Oh, great. Um, it won't be called a prenatal, but it certainly will be a fertility formula because um, I can't call it a prenatal for that reason. Mm. So I, I think, yes, if we can... Um, if we can educate people that, you know, folic acid is not necessarily the way to go. And I, I would go so far, Steph, as to say that I don't think it's the way to go for anyone, let alone someone with the MTHFR gene, because of this overloading of this key enzyme in the first part of our folate pathway. So I think... I think if we can, if people can be wise and savvy and go, okay, I know I need good levels of folate, but perhaps I just don't need that form. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I'm really, really trying to change. Yeah, amazing. I look forward to seeing your supplement because that will make things a lot easier. It certainly will. And yeah. I've, got, I've got my first range of supplements coming out in the next four weeks. So oh, wow. I'll let you know when they arrive. Yeah, absolutely. And so then how... How is the challenges or how are the challenges with synthetic folate linked to the comments you made before about multiple miscarriages or the birth defects? 
Well, there's no question that the fortification of folic acid was brought about predominantly in those poorer communities that did not have the resources to supplement. Mm. So they, they fortified foods to say, well, we're going to affect every woman and we're going to make sure that we try and cut out um, neural tube defects. That's the whole purpose of it. But what they haven't then looked at is what what happens when a, a, a typical Western diet, when they're eating so much of it that it's overloading the system? So, you know, these these um, these mandatory fortifications were coming in came in in the early eighties, but we haven't really sat down and said, all right, that's coming up to you know thirty years ago. Should we be revising? Should we be looking at this? Because particularly in Australia and in the US, it's we don't have um, a population like, say, in Africa where they're not able to get any fortification in anything. So I, I think we need to be reviewing the rules and regulations around this mandatory fortification because there's been some studies out um, that... I, I presented last week at the, the conference that said, you know, really over 400 micrograms, this Irish study um, pointed out, they said we think that's potentially dangerous. So most people would be getting more than that in a day. So I know from food alone or from supplementation yes. as well. From food alone, this okay. this particular one was from food alone because you know you think about it. Most people would have a cereal for breakfast, then they'd have some bre um, bread at lunchtime, and then possibly you know bread again or pasta or something like that at night. So it's quite easy to to see how it might accumulate if they're having a protein shake or a power ball or something again fortified with folic acid. It's not inconceivable to think that they are getting that. Mm. So I think we just need to be, we need to, I think we need to readdress it and say, well, okay, that was then, this is now, what is the research telling us? And perhaps we should be modifying what we're doing. Yeah. And so do you use daily guidelines for preconception folate? Like in terms of how many micrograms a day they need? Uh, I use above it. I yeah. always I always use above it because the research um, I, I don't think it's definitely conclusive, but our RDIs I mean the you can only have a maximum of five hundred micrograms in a um, prenatal supplement in Australia, mm. um, which I think for someone who has a homozygous mutation with folic you know folate being downregulated by sixty percent I don't think that's enough. Mm. So. We've got to, and, and there was a really great study that was done not long ago at the end of last year that looked at the five milligram dose of folic acid versus the five milligram of um, uh, methylfolate. And they actually showed that the methylfolate um, was, was much better in terms of DNA methylation of the sperm. So I think it's definitely not conclusive at this point, but we're you know, certainly hoping that there will be more studies done over the next couple of years so that we can actually say, hey, there is a picture here and, and we need to use more. I definitely use more than that if someone's homozygous. I might use, I might use double that. Yeah, the, I thought the guidelines were 800 to 1,200 micrograms of folate per day. 
No, not with um, not with the current folic acid um, mandatory fortification of prenatal supplements. Mm. So you can't, you actually can't put eight hundred in. If you if you um, try to do a prenatal supplement, they will not let you put more than five hundred micrograms in it. I think what I was referring to, though, is the, the, the daily requirement. Oh, I'm so, sorry, and combined yeah. with food. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yes, you're right. Yes, but again, food is a fantastic way to increase your folate. But if you've got a 60% down regulation of that gene, you would have to eat a heck of a lot of folate for it to get through the system. Mm. And then on top of that, you would have to ensure that you had terrific B12 levels. And I really don't think people do. Yeah. Yeah, it does show where supplementations can have their place. Oh, definitely. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about certain food implications. Share with us some of the observations you've experienced in clinic with um, certain foods and how that affects these different methylation profiles. Yeah, it's really interesting because this is an area that I sort of stumbled across across when I first started out and I thought isn't it weird that a lot of people that have problems in what we call the CBS pathway or cystathione beta synthase it's a part of the methylation pathway and people that have problems in that part of the pathway tend to have sulfur sensitivity so they'll come in and they'll go oh I'm on a FODMAP diet I never never eat onion garlic eggs or sulfur based foods because I just can't handle it so then I started to think oh this is weird why would this be and the more I looked into it the more I realized that that was our sulfur detoxification pathway the end the end product is your ability to be able to excrete sulfates out of the urine and so I realized that a lot of people with a sulfur sensitivity the only reason they had a sulfur sensitivity was because they didn't have enough of the nutrients to detoxify sulfur and as soon as you give them they're fine they can tolerate the sulfur again so it was quite interesting and then I looked at other areas of histamine metabolism so a lot of people who have hives and eczema and allergies and asthma I started to look at their homocysteine levels and their ability to break histamine down and realize that they weren't doing it because again they didn't have enough methyls because histamine pathways there's two key pathways one is the Dow pathway that breaks histamine down outside the cell but inside the cell there's another enzyme called histamine N methyl transferase and anything that's a methyl transferase can only work if SAMe donates its methyl group to it so remember we were talking about that at the beginning the ability of these methyl groups to activate so histamine breakdown in the cell needs this methyl group and so if you don't have enough methyls then their ability to break histamine down will will create allergies, asthma, hay fever, uh, diarrhea a lot of the time. People have very, very loose bowels if they've got a histamine intolerance. Um, You know, they might be sneezing a lot. And particularly kids with these, you know, allergic sort of eczema, asthma, 
related things, it's it's really quite easy to get rid of them when you improve their histamine pathways. And particularly all those people that have just gone paleo, you know, it's a very high histamine because nuts and cacao and all of these foods that they've sort of morphed into are really, really high in histamine. And I see a lot of patients who have gone paleo, but they've actually got worse. And that's the reason, because they're overloading the system with histamine and they can't tolerate it. They can't get rid of it. It's fascinating because doesn't the high histamine also, I guess, indicate undermethylation? Yeah, look, it's... I don't like the over-under-methylation. It's a FIFA protocol that um, I don't think gives justice to what we're talking about because histamine, just looking at histamine levels is is not really a good indication. Um, Yes, if it's histamine is high, it may give us an indication that someone doesn't have enough methyls. But for me, it's more about utilisation. So I think everybody can create methyls but I think there's some people that just can't utilise them. And so they get this overloading of methyls, which, and they're usually the people that react badly to um, the methylfolate because they're putting it in, but the body's not using it efficiently. And that may be for a whole lot of different reasons. It might be that their B12 levels are low because if they can't, if they don't have good levels of B12, then they certainly can't um, use their methyls. It might be that, you know, they're taking big doses of B6 and zinc, which is depleting homocysteine levels. So there's a lot of reason behind it. But I don't think, I don't, I don't agree with the over-under-methylation. I think it's, A, it's people not being able to create enough. And B, there's some people that create plenty, but they just can't use them. Yeah, okay. So then how do we... How do you analyse the pathology? So you've mentioned that you want to see high B12, but I don't think you're using the reference ranges that we see on our labs. No, I'm not at all. Mm. Um, If, you know, Douglas Hanley Moore and Lavity Pathology will look at reference ranges and say anything greater than, you know, 150 and somewhere between, you know, 550 is absolutely fine. Mm. But I did a, a webinar on B12 and I really got stuck into the research and I had a look and, you know, the Japanese increase their reference ranges to say the 500 is the minimum that they, they're now looking at. Mm. And I think if you, you – we have people in the, you know, early 200s in, in their serum B12 – and they come in with pins and needles, numbness, tingling, brain dysfunction. They've got signs of neurological issues because of a low B12, yet no one is picking it up. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I mean, we, we all, all of us, doctors, specialists, practitioners, naturopaths, we all should be able to say this person has signs and symptoms of a B12 deficiency. And irrespective, I mean, I know if I see someone whose B12 levels are in the hundreds, I send them straight to the doctor to have a B12 shot every week for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And the times that they walk back in and they go, oh, I feel so amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think we're, we're really – we've got a lot of vegans and vegetarians. We've got a lot of young girls, you know, at school who decide they want to be, you know, vegetarian and it's all very trendy, but they're really not supporting methylation at all. And I think a lot of them end up with anorexia, 
and neurological issues, and I think that's the reason, because they're not fortifying with B12. So, you know, if my daughter turned around and said, I want to be a vegan or a vegetarian, I would make her go to the doctors every few weeks for a B12 shot, and that would stop her being a vegetarian because she hates needles. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's worse, the meat or the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. So fascinating. And what about homocysteine? How do you use the labs for homocysteine? So I, I'm really um, very particular about my homocysteine levels. I like them to sit between 7 and 7.5. Mm. Uh, I think from a medical fraternity, it's really only relevant if it's high. But I think more of our very sick patients have low. So for me, I, high is really simple. I can get rid of high in a matter of weeks. Yeah. But low is very difficult. And low is, a, is an issue because it then affects the amount of methyls that can be picked up by homocysteine and converted to SAME. So again, we're losing these crucial methyl groups that we need to activate, activate these biochemical pathways. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really, and a lot of my allergic patients, they have low homocysteine, not high. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because the high we obviously have now even see um, on the pathology reports, it even mentions that that is the cardiovascular disease risk. So yes. at least now that conversation is being had. Yes. Um, yes, definitely. And there's there's a lot of imp- implications for elevated homocysteine. Um, but really the, the, the key thing is this person is really lacking in B12, folate and or B6. That's what that's telling us. These people need help with those three nutrients more than anything else. Yeah. So then that comes back to your decision as to which B supplementation they're best suited to to clear that excess homocysteine? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and this is what I think we're, we're certainly, this is the message I was, I was getting out to practitioners in that latest um, roadshow presentation series is that you've, we, we've got to come back to looking at the person in front of us and analyzing them on an individual basis there's no right diet for anyone Mm -hmm. there is no right supplementation for anyone it you have to look at the individual on an individualistic basis and say you need a heck of a lot more b12 you need less b6 because you're you know you're you're not um getting rid of the sulfur so that's just going to speed that that increase in sulfur up so you've got to look at all these nuances and say okay you need this you don't need that I want you to go on this particular diet for a little while and then I want you to change to this one and so it becomes harder because you don't have a set protocol but you you've got to look at individuals oh absolutely couldn't agree more so I wanted to touch on the the behavioural disorders or the autism and ADHD that you mentioned briefly before. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with the MTHFR genes and these conditions? Look, I think there's certainly from a research point of view, they have begun to touch on the link between ADD, ADHD, autism and folate levels, Mm. certainly. Um, This paper that I was referring to with the sperm epigenome, their conclusion was if we are decreasing methylation in 
the DNA of the sperm, well then what potentially are we doing to the female's egg? And therefore, they surmise that this was actually contributing then to behavioural disorders in the offspring. And the reason is because these methyl groups, they have got to be there for us to create our neurotransmitters. So, you know, for serotonin and dopamine and glutamate and GABA control, all of these things for detoxification. And we know that a lot of kids with autism, they have major detoxification problems. They have elevated mercury, elevated aluminium, more so than the average child. And so their detoxification pathways are blocked, but they're also not getting methyls to support neurotransmitter synthesis and when we give that we actually see them calm you know you don't get this frantic and and I look I know that this isn't I can't help but think that if we are fortifying foods with folic acid and I know this will be a controversial statement but if we're fortifying foods with folic acid and kids are eating it every single day it is actually putting a strain on the folate pathway is it inconceivable to think that this fortification regime is what's increasing the risk of autism because if you then look at um you know, the whole vaccination um, conversation, which again is very, very controversial. But there's no question, I think, that there are some kids that are at increased risk of having adverse effects from vaccinations Mm -hmm. because their capacity to deal with A, the vaccination and B, what's in the vaccination isn't there. And so we've got to support methylation in my mind, get them feeling better, get their detoxification pathways. And then if you want to do, you know, delayed vaccinations, I mean, I was reading a paper the other day that said in the US, by the time a child is five months old, they've had 38 vaccinations. That's insane. Wow. That's insane. In, in my day, when I was born, I'd be lucky to have had four. Yeah. So I think we are overloading an immune system that is not there to cope with it. And particularly, there are some kids that are more susceptible. And I think that seemed, that makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, yeah, it if, does. And again, it comes back to that individuality. And I think that's where the vaccination conversation gets a little bit lost because the statements are made very sweeping, um, very blanket-like, which that's, right. that's not what you're saying, right? So that's yeah. really important to individualise the, the best outcome. That's right. To say, you know, that absolutely every child has to have X amount of vaccinations before a certain age is not being individualistic at all. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some kids that are really sick. And so why would you overload a sick child's immune system? I mean, I get... I get mothers in all the time saying, you know, I would rather give up my job and stay at home until the child gets to school because I don't want all these vaccinations in place and I'm happy for them to be at home with me, certainly in the short term. So we work on the methylation capacity. We make sure that their ability to cope with these vaccinations for when they go to school are are there. Um, And there there are some children that I write to 
certain doctors and say, look, I really think that this child should be considered for an exemption at least for another year because we're not ready. Wow. You know, we've still got work to do. So can we just delay it a little bit? And if we could have more of those conversations, I think it would be great. But, yeah, it's it's the same thing, Steph. There's not one rule for everything. How do those conversations go, though? Is, uh, do you have success with that kind of approach? I have one doctor that I have success with. Okay. <laughs> um, and she's in Melbourne, actually. Um, she's fantastic because I think she really understands the nuances of what I'm talking about and she'll say you know particularly if there's a very strong family history of you know autism or behavioral disturbances or anxiety and depression in the in the parents then we need we need a heck of a lot more time are you able to share who that is no <laughs> <laughs> um but if you, I tried <laughs> I will I will um I'll email you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, but I think that, yeah, certainly if we can really try and have that conversation with other practitioners that you might be working in conjunction with, that's going to make all the difference. Yeah, and look, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if you know the work of Stephanie Sanif. Um, she's a scientist in the US and she's um, written a heck of a lot about glyphosate and how glyphosate puts added strain onto this methylation cycle and glyphosate is basically roundup and they believe that a lot of americans will be eating their body weight per year in glyphosate because that it's sprayed on wheat corn um, soy and cotton predominantly and so it's in the food stuff. It's in the clothes that people are wearing. And it literally shuts down our phase two or, or both one phase one and phase two liver detoxification. So if we've also got this added burden from our environment, and I think everybody has got that, not just people with the MTHFR gene, but I do think that the people with the MTHFR gene are even more susceptible. So, you know, we've got... We've got this toxic environment that we're also coping with that some people cope with fine and others don't at all. And so we've got to work extra hard with these people that don't to improve detoxification capacity and get them. I've got one young girl who's a patient of mine. She can't, she cannot take anything at all she's on five foods she can't even put a supplement in her hand without reacting what's the reaction she, uh neurological dysfunction she pretty well passes out she comes out in a rash she's just so so overloaded overladen with um toxic metabolites at every level that her um her immune system just doesn't switch on so we've got lots of patients like that that are in the extreme i realize that i understand that that's why we've got that dedicated mthfr clinic because we see people that have been sick for a very very long time your average listeners they're not going to be like that some will but some will most of them will not and so if you can give them these parameters of you know moderation i think is the key message 
Two, stress is the, the biggest single thing that I think that kickstarts this downward spiral of methylation if you're if you're susceptible. So strategies, strategies to understand and cope with stress is really important, whether that be yoga, meditation, exercise, or a combination of all of that. I even say to some of my prenatal women, you know, you need to make that decision. Do you give up your job or do you try for a child? Because I really believe that the stress from your job is your major contributing factor. Because how many times do we hear someone say, oh, look, we gave up having a child and then four months later they're pregnant? Because the stress levels of A, trying to conceive and B, you know, all the ancillary things was just too much and the body was in this hyper-stress state. So looking at the food, being moderate in the food, I'm not a fan of, you know, fads, moderately exercising, um, you know, being social, all these things that contribute to our well-being, I think, you know, we come back to that message. I think understanding gut function, we're, we're learning more and more and more every day about the, how the foods we eat have an impact on the gut microbiome yeah. and it and, and these shifts in our key phyla that um, control metabolism, control, you know, there's there's research now that just having a disturbance in these phyla categories can can cause people to be obese. So, you know, having the good fibre, making sure that we're we're having the pulses and the beans and things like that, it's, it's, it's got to be, we've got to have these conversations because I think we lose sight a lot of the time of go back to basics and really look at gut, look at diet, look at lifestyle, look at stress levels to make sure that you're getting this balance back. Yeah, I agree. I think the MTHFR conversation is growing and I also think that one of the negatives is that suddenly everyone sort of freaks out about these big words like polymorphism and they almost make the assumption that they're going to feel this way. Mm. Whereas, as you say, like hopefully with a great environmental base, there'll be no expression. Yes, that's right, exactly right. But because we are a dedicated clinic, Mm. we are really seeing those people. So if we say... Um, research tells us up to 60% of the population have a mutation in the MTHFR gene, right? That's a lot. Yeah. But I think uh, probably 80% don't really have any issues. But it's that 20% who have this family history, perhaps their parents were really stressed, um, you know, working too hard, eating badly when they were pregnant, which caused this expression or this overexpression of the gene in their DNA. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look family history is your biggest clue. If you've got a long family history of anxiety and depression, then I think definitely looking at the MTHFR gene is a huge step because it could be the reason. If I see patients that have, you know, um viral high viral loads or chronic fatigue as a teenager, I go there is a problem with your methylation cycle because I don't believe any child should have chronic fatigue. And and it, this cycle leads directly into our energy cycle. So I think anyone that's had, you know, that will turn around and say, 
I've pretty well been fatigued my whole life. I go, you have a problem with methylation. So family history, you know, if someone had a patient whose every single male member of his family died with a heart attack and or, and or a stroke by the age of 48. So for me, that is a great opportunity to say, well, we're not going to send you down this same track. Yeah. This is what epigenetics is. We have the ability to work on the genes from a nutraceutical point of view and say, well, that gene doesn't work, so let's use the cofactors, let's speed it up, or let's override it and make sure that your body is getting what it needs. And I think that's what's really exciting about all this. You know, we can't change the genes you have, but we can certainly change the way they act. For sure. Was his homocysteine high? Uh, not well. When I first saw him, yes. Yeah. Um, it was certainly higher, but it was in the reference range because yeah. don't forget the reference range says over 15 is high. Oh, well, his was sitting at 14, and for me that was high. So I, I really um, – but he had – look, he also had – a lot of very addictive type behaviour, um, which I don't think helped him. And so by by sort of balancing some of those um, neurotransmitters, it actually helped him relax and calm a lot more. And I think it was that inner stress, the inner sort of turmoil all, all day, every day that certainly wasn't helping him. It's so it fascinating. Like you said, yeah. with the reference ranges, you've got this very narrow 7 to 7.5, but... Um, I have someone close to me that had 14.9 and were told that they were fine because it was inside yeah. 15. That's right. And I was That's just right. appalled. But you look at what reference ranges are. Reference ranges are purely a combination of all the people that have had tests in the last couple of years. Well, are they healthy? No. No. Most people, healthy people, don't have blood tests. So I don't think, well, I, I definitely know it's not a functional range. What does your body need to function optimally? And it is certainly not 15. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hopefully one day we'll see some changes in the reference ranges, but until then we've obviously got your work to look at and some, some great ideas of how to optimise our our uh, our genetics really our our physiology our biochemistry it's fantastic yeah i just i've just finished um i've been working the last six months on doing an online preconception um course for all women around the world that need help with preconception so i've actually got modules in there that teaches them how to evaluate their correct levels by looking at the reference range and saying if it's if it's not in this range, it's either low or it's high, and I think that's that's exciting because it means that if someone is in Russia and they have no practitioner that can give them a hand, well, I'm going to teach them how to do it themselves because we get people all the time saying, you know, I'm in Afghanistan or I'm in Pakistan or I'm in Russia and I really really need your help. So I created this course just purely so that I could say, okay, here's a course for you. If you need help along the way, I'm here, but it's going to teach you everything that you need to know. Yeah, amazing. I'll put the link to the show notes in the, sorry, the link to the course in the show notes. So that okay, that'd be great, yeah. Listeners can find out more. And I see Ben Lynch is a part of that course. Yes, he did an interview for me. I've, I've had a, a great relationship with Ben. Um, he's seeking 
Seeking Health on mthfr.net in the US. And we've had a great relationship. He's been a fantastic contributor to my website over the years. And I knew that he actually started his um, MTHFR life looking at preconception. So I really wanted to get his thoughts on why he thought it was so important and what sort of message he would want people to to get out there. So that that was really good that he um, contributed to that because he was very, very, very or is very passionate about really getting every woman to check for this gene. And this is, I think this is the other message, Steph. You know, the, the current protocol is if you have had three miscarriages, then that's when we check for the MTHFR gene. Well, why wouldn't you say to everybody, listen, check for the MTHFR gene before you fall pregnant. And if there are any women in your family that have had miscarriages or complications with pregnancy, then you are at a high risk. Yeah. I mean, that, wouldn't that be the message? I, that's what I would want. I would want someone to tell me before I fell pregnant, listen, just, just do the blood test. It's only going to cost you $50. Just do it so you can make sure you haven't got a potential um, problem. And if you were homozygous for either of them, then I would be looking for support to get an extra levels of folate in the system. Yeah, that's the way I approach it. I, I make the, the female aware that there's there's something else that she needs to factor into her preconception goals. And, you know, you've seen it as well. There are plenty of people that would have multiple miscarriages, multiple rounds of IVF, and no one has ever mentioned this at all. No, no, exactly right. And I think um, I had a meeting with the doctors at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital just to talk to them about it and say, you know, why don't you routinely check? And I think it's it's more that there's the potential implication then of, well, what does it mean if it's not an issue? You know, so so it's almost like playing the devil's advocate to say, well, if they have it and it's an issue, it's great that we checked. But if they have it and it's not an issue, what does it do to them mentally? And I think that's all about how you approach this question. You know, I say to my patients, look, you have to know because it will, it, it has the potential to affect your folate levels. And I would rather you talk really good levels of folate and prepare than have issues with, um, your, you know, your pregnancy but most of the people that come to our clinic, they've already had three, four, five, six miscarriages or they've had, you know, seven, eight failed IVFs. Yeah. And I work very closely with the specialists, um, some of the fertility specialists, because they know that I will look at it from a genetic point of view predominantly. They've checked out all the structural issues. They've checked out, you know, all the potential, um, I guess, physiological potential issues but then I look at more of it from a genetic point of view and so I think that combination is fabulous to be able to work with people like that it just means that you're getting this total look at a family history and I look at see I'm a lot more critical because I'll look at the reference ranges and go well I'm really not happy with your b12 levels or I'm really not happy happy with your folate or I think your zinc is crappy you know so you can you can look at it from that perspective. But I think, yeah, it's exciting. I, I say to them, look, this is really exciting because we can do something about it. Oh, it's absolutely exciting. I mean, there'd be nothing worse. I feel so sorry for the women that find out about this too, like so far down the track. Yeah. 
Obviously. I do. I do a. I've done a webinar pretty well every um, week. I started off the year every week. Then it's now every month, and it's a free fertility um, webinar where where people can get on from all over the world and just ask me questions. I talk about what the research says, and there is not the amount of women on those webinars every week that have had multiple. Pretty well, all of them have had multiple miscarriages. Mm. So I think I'm like you. Well, well, shouldn't we be shouting this from the rooftop saying, listen, just check. If, if, and if you're homozygous, you need to get a bit more of an assessment done. But just check to see if you have it, particularly if your mum or your grandmother or your sister or your aunt or your, has had a miscarriage. You know, that's what I think that's a message that we should be getting out there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> been amazing chatting with you today it's such an interesting topic i find it just so fascinating and i'm grateful for all the work that you do and all the research that you share with us so it's mthfr support.com.au thank you and as i said i'll link the preconception course the 10-week course and a link to your website um, in the show notes so please head there team and I hope to speak to you again soon, Carolyn. It's been great. Thanks, Steph. We could go on for hours, couldn't we? There's <laughs> I know. So we've much hit, to talk about. <laughs> we've hit the hour mark. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It's been wonderful. Take care. Okay, bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.